Okay, so I spent quite a while uh, preparing some slides for tonight because I do have some information for you. And unfortunately, uh, they did not save. Uh, so the file I downloaded and imported uh, did not update and it had all the old stuff in it from a previous week. Uh, so we have no uh, slides tonight. So I do want to encourage you, even if you're not a note taker, I really do want to encourage you tonight to at least take a couple of notes about a few things that we're going to talk about. Uh, even if you have to open your phone and go to the notes section or whatever it may be, I just want to encourage you to do that tonight. Um, because what we're talking about tonight may or may not be something that you've thought through before or that you've had the specific information or terminology to address. Okay, so as we've been doing through this study, which hasn't been all that long yet, but we've been identifying particular concepts, philosophies, ideas, or attacks on the Christian faith, and we want to, first of all, transport ourselves into the mind of that person so that we can see through their eyes what are they seeing, what terminology are they using, and if we can do that, we can better relate to them. If we can better relate to them, we can better understand their heart, their mind in this situation, and then properly be able to address what is really there. We want to avoid, at all costs, what is called, if you're not familiar with it, straw man argumentation. Okay? If you don't know what straw manning is, it means that there, there is a real argument okay, right here, and it's thick, and it's a, it's a real argument. And what you do is you create a caricature of their real argument, and you destroy the caricature because the caricature, caricature is ridiculous, right? But it's not truly representative of what they actually think and believe. We are not interested in creating straw men and then destroying them. We are interested in actually looking at the real arguments and concepts brought to or about or concerning the Christian faith from the outside, that we can properly address them. We want to represent the other side accurately, and we want to address what they're saying accurately and not something that we've created. You understand what I'm saying? It would be very easy for us to say, oh, that's ridiculous, and say something outrageous about it and then dismiss it easily. But you're not actually dealing with it at that point. We want to actually deal with it, okay? So tonight the issue we're addressing is, is Jesus the only Savior? We are looking at the exclusive nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how people in this world respond to us saying, there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. And that in itself, other people, people outside of the faith, sometimes people inside the church, we might say, they create a caricature of us saying that, and they say, that's ridiculous that you would say that. Why would, they, why would anyone think that's ridiculous? Especially someone who claims to be a Christian. Why would you say it's ridiculous to say that there is salvation in Jesus Christ and, and nowhere else? Why is, how, could that, how could you even think that? Isn't that what it means to be a Christian, to believe that? Okay, so let's enter into the conversation and see what people are saying. Okay, you ready? So we're going to talk about three big concepts, and I'll just tell you what the three are, okay, and then we'll address them individually. The first concept is pluralism, 
I know we've used this word in another context, but we're using it in this context, okay? Pluralism, also known as, in, in mine, I have this in parentheses, universalism. Okay? That's the first concept. P pluralism, or you might call it, in certain circumstances, universalism. Okay, that's number one. Number two concept is inclusivism. Inclusivism. My spell check told me that's not really a word. It is a word. And then the final one, number three, is exclusivism. Exclusivism. Okay? Those are our three ideas. Number one, pluralism. So let's address that. What is that? So I want to represent these all in the same terms. I want to represent these all in the same terms with two points, which is why this would have been great to put up on a slide, okay? In all of these, I'm going to say number one, number two, and I'm going to show you how they're all a little, how they're different from each other, okay? In pluralism, here's number one. Jesus is not the only Savior. This is what pluralism believes. Jesus is not the only Savior. That's number one. Number two, explicit faith in Jesus is not necessary for salvation. Explicit faith in Jesus is not necessary for salvation. This is what pluralism or universalism believes. Jesus is not the only Savior, and explicit faith in Jesus is not necessary for salvation. But the two go together, don't they? However, we're going to see in the other two, the other two main points, these same questions addressed, number one and number two, but different. Now, pluralism emphasizes a certain aspect, and that would, I would say, I would classify as love. Okay, if you're writing down a word to think about pluralism, uh, it's going to be love. How do you define love? You can't really. You know this one. You know this idea already. We're just putting a label to it, okay? We're taking things that exist in this world, and we're saying, how do we understand what these people are thinking or how they're thinking? And we just are collecting them, and we're putting them in a category where they belong, okay? This is universalism or pluralism. Now, there's a guy who represents this situation well. His name is John Hick. <clears throat> he argues, though, for the existence of God. God exists. However, Jesus is not the only Savior, and explicit faith in Jesus is not necessary for salvation. But God does exist. And how does he argue for the existence of God? We talked about our apologetic methodology, if you can recall. There are different ways to argue for the existence of God or for the gospel. And what John Hick does is he argues from personal experience. He argues that God exists because there are many major religions in this world that all seem to have very religious, meaningful experiences. Would you also say that you acknowledge that? There are people of different faiths, different religions, who seemingly have very 
sincere religious experiences. Can we all agree that we have observed that in this world that we live in? Okay, how do we make sense of that? Well, for John Hick, he looks at that in this world and he says, well, clearly there is something out there because all these people can't be wrong. There is some kind of religious experience to be had. Therefore, a God, if that's what we want to call it, exists. Sometimes he refers to God as the ultimate. The ultimate. There is an ultimate reality, an ultimate existence, and that thing out there, we're not sure what it is, but it's out there, but it exists. It doesn't not exist. It's certainly there. What about Jesus? Jesus was a human who attained special awareness of the ultimate. That's who Jesus is. Jesus said, you know that thing that's floating out there? I know about it. Now, what's very interesting, though, is that all of what Jesus said about the ultimate, uh, John Hick simply dismisses. So that's strange, isn't it? He'll acknowledge that Jesus was a real person, but he'll say, but what he said about the ultimate or God, see, that's an issue because then we have to talk about the transmission of the Bible and the reliability of the scriptures themselves, and that's all messed up. I don't believe what's going on there. Now, I do acknowledge that a Jesus must have existed, but not the way this thing depicts it. You understand? Okay. He says, Jesus is our model. For example, he says, look at the Lord's Prayer. That's a great way to pray, right? Look at how Jesus acted. That's probably a pretty good way to act. Let's be more like him. He's a great model. But do I need to have faith in him to have salvation? No. Um, Jesus is not the only savior, uh, certainly not. He just was a person who was aware of this big thing that exists out there. We should be more like him, okay? You got the idea? There is salvation, he would argue, within non-Christian religions, and the person and work of Jesus is not necessary to obtain that salvation. I just want to emphasize that reality. Here are a couple of quotes. I'm going to read these slowly because I don't have them on the screen for you, okay? I have just three quotes from, and they're all pretty, they're really short. Here's what he says. The God figures of the great theistic religions are different human awarenesses of the ultimate. So in other words, Muslims have their representation, the Buddhist representation, Hindus have their representation, the Jews have their representation, the Christians have their representation, and all these have true aspects of them. They're all just doing the best thing they can do as humans to try to figure out the ultimate. Here's another quote. We can see Jesus as the one who has made God real to us, who has shown us how to live as citizens of God's kingdom, who is our revered spiritual leader. He is our inspiration and he is our model. Now, we're going to disagree with everything he says, but he is our model. Okay, that's my commentary. Last quote. The cosmic optimism of the great traditions, that is, the great religions of the world, their proclamation that a limitlessly better existence is available to all, to all, because it is rooted in the ultimate structure of reality. This strongly suggests that we will all attain this in the end. 
perhaps after many lives and in many worlds. Did you follow what he just said? (laughs) He just said, there is, with all these great religions of the world, there is obviously something out there. And the best that we can argue is that there is a greater existence to be had, what we would call salvation. He says, this is available to everyone, to all people. It is not only available, every single individual will attain this salvation. However, it might take you a few tries. It might take a few lives to get it right, but you're going to get it. Everybody will. This is why it's also known as universalism. Okay? Pluralism in the sense that there are many ways to obtain salvation. Universalism in the sense that everyone's going to get it in the end. Okay? Have a good picture of pluralism or universalism in your mind? Next, inclusivism. What is that? How is it different from pluralism or universalism? Inclusivism answers the two questions. Remember the two questions or two statements, I should say? Inclusivism says... Jesus is the only Savior. Do we agree with that? Yeah, it's good so far. Off to a great start. However, question number two, or statement number two, however you want to see it. Explicit faith in, this is copying the first question, or the the first set of questions, right? Explicit faith in Jesus Christ is not necessary for salvation. Now, Jesus is the only Savior. Yes, however, explicit faith in Jesus is not necessary for salvation. This is what inclusivism argues. And here's what I will argue with you, um, not really based on anything other than what I can tell you I have heard and seen, is that I believe the inclusivist approach to these things, whether someone is aware of it or not aware of it, is the most common approach to salvation and God, Christianity, religion in general, in the United States at least. Many people, I believe, who call themselves Christians are inclusivists. I believe that is true. They say there is salvation only in Jesus. However, they'll say, however what about all these situations? And they're like, well, maybe not. But yes, but no. What are we talking about? Well, if universalism emphasized love, what does inclusivism emphasize? In my opinion, I believe it is fairness that is being emphasized. Fairness. It's not fair. Jesus is the only savior, but what about the guy that never heard about Jesus? Well, it's not fair. Surely God will save him. So you're an inclusivist. You believe that Jesus is the only Savior, but he's not the only way to salvation. Huh. That's interesting. I believe many people, if pressed, are going to turn out to be inclusivists. We are not inclusivists, by the way. Correct? God desires the salvation of all people all people. And if he desires the salvation of all people, then if someone never hears the gospel, well, then God is going to be fair to them and give them salvation if they were genuine in seeking whatever they did know. 
if they were just genuine in heart, they were like a good person, but they just never heard the gospel. But man, they were good. God's going to be fair to them, isn't he? Adherents of this position are two main people. Now, when I say adherents, I'm talking about academic adherents, okay? You understand that many people believe these things. I'm talking about the people that come up with the articulated ideas of the position. But many people just believe them. I'm talking about the scholars who actually write about these things. Clark Pinnock and John Sanders. Those are the two names if you're interested. Clark Pinnock and John Sanders. Here's some of the things they believe. While the work of Jesus is necessary, one need not necessarily know about who he is. All people must have a chance to be saved. Must. General revelation is enough to bring people to saving faith. I have talked about this recently. General revelation, here's I believe how I said it. General revelation is enough to condemn you but it is not enough to save you. How can that be? Well, it's because general revelation shows you that a God exists, but it does not tell you who Jesus is and what he did. And in order to have salvation from our position, from the biblical position, you must know who Jesus is and you must have faith in him in order to obtain salvation. However, some would say, the inclusivists, they would say, well, now, what Jesus did was necessary. We needed to have someone suffer in our place. That's true. His work was necessary. However, we also believe that God desires all people to be saved and everyone must have a chance because God's a fair God. So if someone simply doesn't have the chance, but they were a good person and they tried and they acknowledged that there's something out there, then that's good enough. It's not so much about what you believe, it's just the sincerity of what you believe. That, that's it right there. It doesn't even matter what you believe, it's just about how sincere you are. Both of these people, by the way, people that call themselves evangelical Christians. So, throw that title on yourself. That's as bland as this position right here. Okay? Here are some quotes. Are you ready? Excited about these quotes? The conviction of inclusivism is that the Christian message is the fulfillment, not only of the Old Testament religion, but in some way of all religious aspiration and the human quest itself. Another quote. These are all from uh, Clark Pinnock. God saves through faith through a response not confined to a religious framework. I'm going to read that again because that's very insightful. God saves through faith, what I was calling sincerity, through a heart response not confined to a religious framework. You can have sincerity of belief and faith in pretty much anything, and as long as you're sincere enough, that's fine. God saves you because of that but only because of what Jesus did. Okay. What God really cares about is faith and not theology. He cares about trust, not orthodoxy. The unevangelized can be saved through faith. 
When we share the gospel with people, we call them to a higher and deeper calling to know God better and to love him more. So in other words, we should still share the gospel with people, but it's really just so that they might have a better concept of who God actually is. It doesn't save them more. It just helps them to understand God more and it calls them deeper and higher that they might have a better personal experience on this earth. That's really the point. If God really loves the whole world and desires that everyone be saved, it follows logically that everyone must have access to salvation. That's a, that's a good argument, actually. I'm going to read that again. If God really loves the whole world and desires everyone to be saved, it follows logically that everyone must have access to salvation. That's his argument. I believe it's flawed, but it is, a, I think, a good argument from that position. His main argument, then, he rejects the idea that God has foreknowledge Every person's salvation is up to that person. Inclusivists are not universalists. There are consequences for rejecting faith. Interesting position. I would argue with you, however, if pressed, the person who has not articulated what they actually believe, I believe if pressed, they're an inclusivist because they believe in sincerity. God's not going to do anything bad to a sincere, good person. We have an answer for that. So let's look at the exclusivist position, exclusivism. This is us. And we're going to look at the two, two ideas that we've looked at before. Jesus, in, in exclusivism, Jesus is the only Savior. So we agree with the inclusivists on that, don't we? Jesus is the only Savior. And, number two, explicit faith in Jesus Christ is necessary for salvation. So that puts us different than the inclusivist, and it puts us different than the pluralist. You all following me? What is our emphasis? The truth of Scripture. We don't emphasize an emotion. We emphasize objective truth. Right? I, I do have a few passages here. I'm not going to read them all. And so what I'd like to do is just... Uh, these are simply passages that I want you to reference for your own arsenal. You follow me? It's like, oh, okay, we talked about that. What are some of the verses that we talked about? I'm going to give you the references. I'd like for you to write them down, okay? John 3, 16 through 18 talks about how Jesus is the only Savior, and you must have faith in him, and if you don't, there are consequences, okay? That's what all these are referring to. So John 3, 16 through 18, easy one to remember. Next one, John 14, 6. John 14, 6, if you can remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Right? We believe that? But you're an exclusivist. 
Acts 4.12. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. We know that one too, don't we? 1 John 2.23. 1 John 2.23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. That's talking about a specific Son, right, who has been defined in the Scriptures. And it's talking about explicit faith in that Son, isn't it? 1 John 5.12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's pretty cut and dry, isn't it? But what does this take? This is why I started there when we started a few weeks ago. Where did we start? I told you, it all comes down to your belief in the Scriptures, and it's not something that we can create in a person. So if someone's going to believe these things to be true because we're saying, but the Scripture says that, but they say, but I don't believe the Bible. How do you deal with that? I hope we all know how we deal with that right? We understand that we give them the word of God, but we can never create faith in them. God does that work. That's what we trust. That's what we trust in. Romans 10, 9 through 17. How are they to believe unless someone is sent, right? You know that passage. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Okay, there are a couple of passages of concern, however, and I want to address those. Because if you're talking to an, an inclusivist or, an, or a, a universalist, a pluralist, there are a few passages in Scripture that they're going to throw in your face and say, well, what about that? Did you read what I just read? It sounds like God's a universalist. You're telling me he's not. Sounds like God is an inclusivist, but you're telling me he's not. How do we deal with those passages that seemingly look like they might be right? So I'd like to at least spend a couple of moments looking at those, okay? Uh, Acts 10, 34 and 35. So again, the passages we're looking at now in this moment are those passages of concern that someone might bring up to us to say, well, what about this? Because it sounds like you don't have to have faith in Jesus. Okay? Acts 10, 34 and 35 says, So Peter opened his mouth and he said this, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. I mean, it sounds like if you just do what's good and right and live a good, clean life, then you're acceptable. Right? I mean, all of these, every single one of these, it, it, it works almost for them if it wasn't just cherry-picked out of, out of its context. I mean, this is written in context of the entire book of Acts, and there are many passages in the book of Acts that make it very clear that the God that's being talked about, there is access to him in only one way. I mean, we just read uh, Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else. 
right? There is no other name among, uh, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And they say, yeah, well, what about Acts 10.34? Huh? You say, well, listen, Acts 10.34 comes in a context, a larger context. The book of Acts confirms that salvation in Jesus Christ, Son of God, is necessary for salvation. Okay? That one's really easy to deal with, actually. Let's look at a couple others that maybe are a little bit more challenging. I think they're not challenging because they all are pretty much the same, but they might present a challenge if, if no one's ever said, what about this, and thrown it in your face before. 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. You say there's salvation in Jesus Christ alone, and you must have faith in him. Otherwise, you do not have salvation. And they say, oh, yeah? Well, I was reading that Bible of yours, and 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4 came up. Listen to what it says. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So you're telling me that there are people who live and die who never hear the name of Jesus, and yet you're telling me there's a God who wants all people to be saved, but they never even hear the gospel? That's the God you serve? How can that be? By the way, if you struggle with this on another end, because it seems like, well, God desires all people to be saved, but all people are not saved. So either God is not capable of saving everyone or he is not able to save everyone in the sense that um, he doesn't do it on purpose. Which, which is it? Either God is not able to save everyone or he's not willing to save everyone. You have to make a choice because everyone is not saved. It's one of the two things. Either God is unable to save everyone because everyone is not saved, correct? Or God is unwilling to save everyone. Is God perfectly sovereign? Is he the only one that can save? And does he save perfectly? And can he save anyone he wants to? So is it that God is unable? No. It is that God is unwilling. Is that a hard thing for us to swallow? But it is biblically accurate. Now, but this says, but it, he desires all people to be saved. What do you do with that? Seems like you're not interpreting the Bible correctly. Well, wouldn't you know, 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4 comes within a context, and the context tells us who all those people are. And all those people are kings and all who are in high positions and us and people from all classes of society. All people. God desires all people, all types of people to be saved. It's not for one class or another. It's for all people, not for each individual person. So we have to say, well, what does all mean? Each individual person? You understand what's being said there? Titus 2.11. The inclusivist would grab this one because it sounds very inclusivist. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Excellent. I like that one. So Jesus has saved all people, but they would also still say, but, I mean, if you, if you still aren't a sincere person, then there's condemnation for you. That's unfortunate. Um, Universalists would say all people simply means all people. 
all people. All people would be saved, even though Jesus wasn't necessary. It's, it, right? None of them go together logically, do they? How do we interpret this? That the grace of God has appeared and he has brought salvation for all people. It's exactly the same as the other context because all people in verses 1 through 10, and this is verse 11 that I quoted, it says, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, bond servants. It's talking about classifications of people. Again, all people means all classifications of people, not every single individual person. All right, one, one last one. See, it's good to address these, isn't it? And, and to know, well, I, okay, I'm not familiar with that verse, but man, it really does sound like you don't have to have faith in Jesus. I, 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 or you might say, well, maybe God is not perfectly sovereign and able to save everyone. And maybe it is up to you to save yourself. Because God wants everyone to be saved and oh, he just wishes that you would just save yourself. He made it possible. Just grab a hold of it. He wants you to be saved. He just can't do it. I do not serve that God. That God does not exist. Our God exists and he is powerful, and he saves exactly as he intends. That's the God we know. That's the God who saved us, and you know that you didn't save yourself. If he was powerful enough to save you, he can save anyone. So if he doesn't, then it is his, his willing choice to not save. It doesn't mean that that's easy to embrace. It's not a joy for us to embrace that in a sense, right? But it is biblically accurate. So last one, 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What do you do with that one? He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So this one, again, is written in a context, wouldn't you know it, to a you. He is patient toward you, and it's in the plural, toward you all. Who is the you all that he's patient toward that they might reach repentance? Well, let's go back to who he addressed the letter to. Simon Peter, servant of God, of Jesus Christ, to, here's who he addressed it to, and so it's also the you that we just read from, right? He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Who's the you? Those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God, our Savior and Lord. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. These people saved or unsaved? There you go. He's talking about the redeemed. That's who he's talking about. So it's very easy, though, to put on a different set of lenses, isn't it? And say, see? See? And, but... If we, can, if we can put it in its proper context, it all is very cohesive. Okay? Um, oh, there, I do have another one. I do have another one. I'm sorry. 1 John 2, 2. 1 John 2, 2.
he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. You know that passage? Man, that sounds awfully universalist, doesn't it? He is not only the propitiation for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, how might we understand that? That the theme is the same as all the others. What does the whole world mean? What does all people mean? Not only for ours here and now, but for the whole world. Yeah, I mean, it's for, the, it's, for, it's for everyone. Everyone who's to come, everyone, not only in this place here, but in those places there and in those places over there. For people everywhere, salvation has come. Does it mean every single individual person? No. It doesn't mean that. And he makes that clear, actually, in chapter 4. If you continue reading, he interprets himself. It's just that when you pull one of these little verses or two verses out of the air, it makes it seem different than what it really is, right? So um, some concluding thoughts here. What is a wrong response to these things? Um, There are some Christians who are going to throw up a concept that I at least want you to make note of and at least associate bad with it, please, if you would. Uh, It's a big concept. It's called middle knowledge. Um... Anyone ever heard of middle knowledge in the room? Okay. I will, it's also called Molinism. Okay, heard of that? Middle knowledge, also called Molinism, uh, is a way to uh, make God sovereign and yet fair and loving in the world's eyes, uh, but it strips God of his actual sovereignty. Um, just a couple, I have some quotes here of someone who has uh, summarized this. I thought it was good. God's omniscient awareness of what would happen if certain, certain circumstances would occur, including the free, uncoerced choices of creatures in those scenarios. Molinism then, in essence, upholds both real free will and God's total sovereignty, but it, it doesn't. Through the use of middle knowledge. By this, it is claimed that God knows all things that a free creature would do in all possible circumstances, and then he infallibly enacts his will through those circumstances rather than overriding the free creatures. So, yeah, that's complicated, isn't it? The whole thing's complicated. Someone who's a proponent of this is William Lane Craig, if you know who that is. Okay, so um, there, it's, it's that we can't have a sovereign God who knows all things and chooses not to save certain people. We don't like that, so how can we get around that? Here's how we get around it. God does not have um, sovereignty. In other words, he cannot coerce situations. Uh, can God make something happen even if someone doesn't want to do it? Or is he not powerful enough to do that? So we know that that's not true. But certain people say human free will trumps God's will to do what he wants. So if a person wants to do something and God wants to do something different, God's just out of luck. And that also concerns salvation. Someone doesn't want to be saved, but God wants to save them. God's out of luck. And so there's a caricature made of one side that says, well, God forces people to be saved then. No, you're going to be saved, whether you like it or not. And that's false. What God does is he softens hearts, and he opens ears, and he opens eyes, and the unwilling person becomes willing. That's actually what happens. Everyone who is saved is saved willingly and joyfully. There is no one who is coerced into salvation. That's outrageous, right? 
that doesn't happen. So um, anyway, uh, it's like a best of all possible worlds situation. It, middle knowledge is. Um, God looked at the future of every single possible choice that every single free creature would ever make in every single given circumstance, and he created the world where the most people would be saved. Because all he can do is respond to people. He can't make anything happen. So this sounds bizarre? Sounds incorrect? That's right. Okay, what is a right response to these things? Um, well, Scripture, as we've already said, okay? And then also, uh, just as some last thoughts here, um, of course, there's no standard of morality for these people. We know that to be true. So they're going to say it's right, wrong, just, unjust, fair, unfair. According to who? According to Scripture? Well, let's see what else Scripture has to say then. Okay? Um, Jesus did, by the way, claim his own divinity, and he also did rise from the dead. And so everything he said about himself was, in fact, true. I think there is another classic argument that works perfect in these scenarios, and I just want to bring it to your attention because it may be one that you've not heard before. I know that many of you have. I think it is a good argument because I think it's logical. Some people say, oh, it's like that doesn't work fully to the end. Okay, I still think it's great for people seeing their position. If you say Jesus existed and that he was a supreme being, that he attained awareness of things that we didn't, or he's a good model or a good example, or he's a good prophet, something like that. Um, it wasn't C.S. Lewis who came up with this, by the way. It was a guy named John Duncan in the 1700s. Um, the fact that Jesus is one of three things. C.S. Lewis made it famous, um, but it's the concept that Jesus, if real, was one of three things. He was either a liar or a lunatic or Lord. Okay? Because he said certain things about himself. And you say, well, that wasn't true, but he is a good person. Well, you say, well, he's a liar then. He said he was going to rise from the dead. Um, well, obviously that didn't happen. Well, then he's crazy. And if he's not a liar and if he's not crazy, then what must he be? Lord. So he's either a liar or a lunatic or Lord. So universalism and inclusivism want to make a fictional world of all best possible things where God is only love and fair. Uh, those worlds don't exist. Okay? So I hope this has been somewhat insightful into the world. And uh, I hope you know and what you're taking with you is that many people have not articulated their position on this. So if you say to someone, are you an inclusivist? They'll say, I have no idea what you're talking about. So that's, you have to understand, we're articulating something that many people themselves have not articulated. They believe this even though they've never been pressed to what they actually believe. We need to press ourselves down that road to better address people in this world. Help them to see that their position is not logical. Help them to see that their position is not biblical. Help them to see that the Jesus they've created is not the real one. And then pray that the Lord would use this endeavor and this encounter to soften their hearts and to open their eyes but understand that no matter how much logic we put in their path logic cannot save them right so 
I'm going to pray, and you might have a couple of questions, and that's okay. We'll talk about that. But let me pray first, okay? Lord, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for bringing us all together and having this discussion tonight. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. And we believe, as the scriptures tell us, that there is salvation in, in no one else. And then under heaven, there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. We believe this, and we thank you, Lord, that you are not only capable of salvation, but you are sovereign over salvation, and that you can perfectly save and keep us and glorify us in the end. Thank you for what you've done, and I pray that you would use this time of preparation, um, that we might be prudent with our lives and our conversations in this world I pray that you would use this to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, uh, that's what we have for tonight. Uh, I thought I saw potentially a couple of people who had questions. Yes. Yes. 